welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Mir Sadat, a former policy director on the U.S. National Security Council in the executive office of the president of the White House. He's also a career government official in the Department of Defense. Dr. Sadat is the co-author of a recently published report titled U.S. Space Policies for the New Space Age, Competing on the Final Economic Frontier. Dr. Sadat, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Hey, how are you, Tom? It's a pleasure. It's all mine. Uh, thank you for the invitation. In your paper, we'll just kind of go ahead and jump right into this. In your paper, you say that space is the new economic center of gravity, as well as an economic frontier. What's bringing space to the forefront of economic activity? So an amazing, amazing discussion um, th that's been happening in the last couple of years that a uh, decade ago we would have not foreseen. Um, and, you know, a decade ago, uh, we would have thought that space would be primarily used by government and somewhat uh, by the scientific and civil community that would be uh, piggybacking on that. And, you know, we thought uh, satellite radio was a big deal, but today we are uh, way beyond that. And what is happening is uh, the, uh, uh, the launch capability and the launch barriers of entry have been reduced tremendously. And many companies such as uh, um, SpaceX, who have devoted lots of resources to devising technologies and uh, capabilities to do that. And now you see a uh, subsector of space, sp space launch, which you would have never thought about 10 years ago, becoming such a competitive industry, right? And so everybody wants to launch. Everybody has something to launch. You have things that are as small as, as a cube. Uh, to big, uh, you know, assets that the national security um, uh, community has. And so space is becoming that center of gravity because it's the place where, just like this open seas, where national security and, and, and the ter terrestrial planes, we would think of the Navy, right, or maritime security, were uh, civil, uh, like NASA and NOAA, uh, and in the terrestrial planes, we would think about NOAA on the seas or other types of scientific research of the deep oceans and the commercial, uh, mm -hmm. all sort of converging. And the major component of this is actually the commercial side, because the commercial side is innovative. They move faster. Mm -hmm. They think they think uh, nonlinearly. Uh, and they are able to create uh, capabilities that serves both uh, civilian, what I mean by civilian is everyday, ordinary Americans and hu humans around Earth, their their needs, mm -hmm. but as well as establishing those capabilities to serve a national security or international security capability. So having said that, space, the area of space, right, the domain of space is becoming a center of gravity. And so what we mean by center of gravity is basically whoever has control or dominance in that will have uh, the upper hand, right? And so just like uh, the US Navy um, uh, has ships that go into the Strait of Hormuz mm -hmm. or to the South China Sea to make sure 
that any blockages by any nations or organizations to prevent free commerce and free trade and uh, the, the free nations of the world in those regions to exercise their national priorities uh, are not inhibited. Same thing is happening now in space. And so we must make sure that we have a regime in space that values freedom, that values commerce and exchange. And so some of the discussion today is that America is starting to lose that competitive edge. Uh, and when America loses that competitive edge, so does our allies and our partners. Uh, but who, who's gonna fill in that gap? And so the, that is where we talk about center of gravity is if we lose that capability of making sure that space is an equal playing field for all of humanity mm -hmm. and all of the nations, then, then it's no longer benefiting all of humanity and all, all the nations that are on Earth. You put forth in your paper that the United States does not really have a, a long-term planning and commitment to space. What, in your view, is, is undermining that long-term planning and commitment on the part of the United States? So we, we have a couple of uh, um, things that have happened throughout our history. And, you know, uh, in the post-Sputnik era, we were able to um, energize uh, our industry and energize our nation, you know, and we seized a strategic opportunity. And, uh, you know, we were recovering from the Great Depression. If you think about it, you know, in the 1940s, uh, we, we, you know, in that time era, we only had the 12th largest army in the world, you know, not this army that we have today mm -hmm. that everybody complains about that we're all over the globe and we need to pull back. And so the U.S. government turned to uh, America's manufacturing sector and not a robust and thriving manufacturing sector uh, to help not only repair the um, economy, but also build up our industrial base. You know, and so any national uh, power that you might want to consider uh, as a asset cannot exist without an industrial base, right? So you need mm -hmm. an industrial base to back it up. So the U.S. realized that they made investments and they postured the nation and the regulations that produced um, innovative developments in scientific technologies from radio ships, airplanes, nuclear power, solar power, uh, space flight, and eventually the Internet. And so we depended on this uh, throughout the Cold War uh, and uh, we, you know, we, we mm. built on it and we were able to create, um, uh, um, you know, the arsenal of democracy, as you might uh, call it, you know, the carriers, the submarines, the bombers, the fighters, the tanks, the uh, ballistic missiles, satellites, and other technologies. And this was really not to uh, dominate the world or anything like that, but this was to keep uh, the Soviets at bay, right? The world was right. divided into two polar uh, 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 political and economic systems the free world and those that lived behind a curtain whose people could not uh, express themselves freely or who could not tra traverse through the curtain to uh, the Western hemisphere. Mm -hmm. uh, and when the, when the uh, peace dividends of 1990s occurred, uh, we kind of uh, were hoping that the Soviet Union, then Russia and China would be integrated into the system. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we um, realized that that didn't happen. Right. And so uh, what, and, and of course, then in the, the early 2000s, our attention gets distracted uh, by uh, a, uh, a terrible event, the 9-11 attacks, uh, which were terrible in all, all manners, but it was not an existential threat, right? So U.S. democracy, U.S. culture, 
our way of life, uh, our allies would not uh, be at demise by a few terrorists here and there. But but we invested all of our resources on uh, going after these um, culprits. And so now we are at a stage where, uh, you know, we are uh, needing something uh, in a, for a new era, right? We now have things like cyber, right? Which right. we wouldn't have expected uh, 50, 60 years ago. The role that we just discussed about what space-derived capabilities provide. I mean, everything from the GPS on your phone to uh, your uh, the heart pacemaker to everything, right? Every Everything is connected through space. Mm-hmm. Uh, space is a critical infrastructure, not yet designated. Uh, electronic warfare, right? Artificial intelligence. You know, we have Tesla uh, vehicles in California driving themselves, you know, learning how to do that. Uh, human machine learning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not just the chess games anymore. Now we're talking about how do we navigate air, airplanes? How do we navigate ships? How do we navigate missiles and, and so forth? And other emergent technologies that we don't know about. And this is all part of the digital, digital age. And so we've moved now from the industrial age to the digital age, but our regulations, our procurements, our acquisitions, none of those things have been modernized. Right. And so we have to uh, modernize those structures to promote our technology industries, to provide, uh, um, to broaden our markets within the U.S. as well as internationally and with our allies, and uh, to leverage our allies' capabilities. We sometimes can't do that because of the the restrictions. And so one of the things I'd like to say is, you know we created a requirements process for the government to go buy uh, private sector goods mm-hmm. because we wanted to democratize the system. We didn't want one big fish to get all the good stuff and right. then it becomes a uh, monopoly or oligopoly and nobody else gets it. We wanted to make sure we build competitive systems which foster innovation. But now we're at a point where that democratization ha- is not allowing the new entrants into the market to compete because they don't have the uh, infrastructure, they don't have mm-hmm. the capabilities to write all those lengthy requirements pieces. Right. So we need to look and see if that is still necessary. Do we need all that? Um, and you'll find big companies like Boeing even complaining about this, companies that have been here since the start, right? So that that is something internally that we need to fix. Now, look externally, mm-hmm. uh, the major competitor we have in space um, is not really Russia. Uh, Russia, is, from a national security capability, yes, but from an economic capability, not so much. Uh, the competitor we really have is China. Right. And so there are a couple of reasons why. One, China has an amazing uh, population, huge population, a lot of smart people. So a lot of innovation and invention going on there. Some of it is uh, procured and acquired legally. <laughs> Some of it is not. And some of it is uh, borrowed uh, without approval from us and our allies and uh, other people who are not even our allies, who are our competitors. That's a very diplomatic so, way of saying something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, uh, hey, nations will do what nations have to do, mm-hmm. uh, but that they are now at a point where they've uh, reached an amazing inflection point, right? From, uh, you know, in 2003, there is marks their space age. Uh, you know, that is 50 something years after the fact that we landed a man on the moon. Right. Right. In 2018, they had the most launches. And in 2019, they followed up and they were pretty, pretty close to their 2019 numbers. Um, this last year, they were able to go to the moon. And I mean, look, 
I like, uh, I'm, a, I'm a proud American uh, and I served in the, in the White House and, and, and uniform, but I have to give it up to the Chinese. Uh, what an amazing feat and what a um, national accomplishment for them. And whatever means they acquired it te- technology wise, mm-hmm. but they landed on the moon. They picked up a sampling of rock, moon rock. They planted their flag and they came back successfully. And that's, you have to give credit where credit is due. They did an amazing job. Now, mm-hmm. uh, they did that. They're planning to go and have people, uh, you know, like an ISS, uh, you know, have a crew for that. They want to go to the moon. Then they are planning to do a Mars mission. Mm-hmm. And so, the reason they are successful at this, like I mentioned, the acquisition of the technology and the IP, but also the investments that are happening. The government is uh, investing, whether they want to admit it or not, at all stages of the commercial sector, right. uh, from the inception to the development to the rollout and their purchasing. Um, they have companies overseas that are considered by some nations as front companies that collect that try to sell either nefarious, malicious, or uh, counterfeit parts, uh, and uh, and so they are they are everywhere. And so the government does that, and that's a government that doesn't really care about the rules of the game mm-hmm. or how how the the markets global market should play. And uh, so we're at a disadvantage. And you know, I, I'm not saying the United States government needs to go play dirty like that. We don't. We right. we need to play to our strengths. And so this is where the competition really is, right? We are competing with a with a rival, economic rival, and political rival, and military rival who's not playing by the rules. So, Whereas the Russians played a little bit more by the rules right. than that. Does that really come down to the difference between a, a command economy versus a, a capitalist economy, uh, as far as the Chinese are concerned? Yes, very much so. So that that I think is a, a underlying factor here, uh, where. The companies that are being created there are in response to the central planned economy. The companies that are created here in a garage, whether it's where you live or in Silicon Valley or somewhere in Fort Worth, Texas, among four folks who come up with a creative idea is really based on their idea of what is needed. Uh, And then they have a hard time. These companies have a really hard time uh, finding a big government uh, procurement uh, vehicle. Or, or contracting vehicle. And so you have entities that were created, you know, a decade ago, like the Defense Innovation Unit, that are going there, going through and purposely scouting for new technologies that can be leveraged for uh, national security or government capabilities. So that way that innovation is preserved, mm-hmm. that the company is kept afloat, you know, uh, especially this COVID pandemic uh, highlights that our space sector didn't do that bad compared to the other sectors. Right. And a lot of it was because Defense Innovation Unit, Air Force Research Lab, the, the new uh, newly created Space Force, these all proactively went out and uh, helped these companies by saying, hey, you produce this. If you tweak it a little bit, I might be able to pr- procure it from you. And some of those regulations and uh, procurement vehicles were changed a little bit so that we can do that. So that that is exactly what we need to be doing, but we need to be doing it on the larger scale and exponentially. I'm talking with Dr. Mir Sadat, a former policy director in the U.S. National Security Council in the executive office of the White House. He is the co-author of a recently published report titled U.S. Space Policies for the New Space Age, Competing on the Final Economic Frontier. 
Dr. Sadat, you've talked a lot about regulations, and we've talked to a couple of, of attorneys who focus on space, and the whole thing about regulations as it relates to space is still very much a gray area. When you talk about regulations in your paper, what really are you talking about in that regard? Yeah, so one of the things we want to do is our government is different. Uh, our government cycles, uh, budgetary cycles are different than, like you said, a, a planned or central controlled economy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, I mean, just recently we passed the National Defense Authorization Act and the COVID Relief Act and months after they should have been passed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because of political discussions and whatever. And we're not here to talk about that. Uh, whereas planned economies, they look out five, 10, 15 years, right? Mm -hmm. 20 years. Uh, and and they, they, they have a very good uh, linear system that they adjust for it and to, so that they can meet their targets 20 years from now. We don't. So our budgetary cycle is literally yearly uh, the government runs out of money uh, September 30th of every year, and then it needs to be replenished. Otherwise, the military and everybody else in the government that works there and the programs don't get funded unless it's some kind of a, a war-related uh, support right. cost, right? So same thing with contracts. So now I'm competing for a contract. I have this contract. I'm investing in it. Uh, but to help me as this company, wouldn't it be better if I had a two-year contract deal, right? a three-year contract deal, right? So you like my proof of concept, it works, or after that first year, right? After that first year, it's almost like getting tenured. I got this. Mm -hmm. Now, next time I compete for this, can I compete for a two-year contract? Or next time, can I compete for a five-year contract? That will help me a lot because then I can staff up, I can invest resources, I can look at new R&D. But if you constantly just contract me on a yearly basis, how much more R&D will I invest in it? I won't because right. I'm like, I'm just thankful I've got funded this year. But if you give me a five-year contract, now I'm going to do the best things I can do. And I'm going to do exactly what Steve Jobs did. I'm going to disrupt the market by rolling out new product lines, right? right. You have you know, iTunes, then you break the, the cycle again by creating another product that breaks the iTunes model, right? Because iTunes shattered CDs. Sure. Then iTunes goes away. Nobody's using iTunes because now everybody has it on their phones. And then the phones go away because of the little devices on your hand. And, you know, what is next, you know? And so it, it, you, we need those types of investments that create moonshot uh, opportunities for these companies that right. they get incentivized to start thinking innovation. And that is what we are missing in the U.S., and that is what is not missing in, uh, in nations like China. NASA right now is on a path that it hopes would lead to a manned mission to the moon by 2024, but there are concerns that the incoming Biden administration will want to shift NASA's focus more towards Earth sciences and climate change. Is that, in your view, a critical mission for the space agency, or should they be focused more on looking outward as opposed to turning back inward? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that is important, and I think it ties into the last question, is we do need to return to previous uh, levels of public financing for science and technology research mm -hmm. and R&D innovation, right? Uh, back when Sputnik happened in the early 1950s, 
we were at uh, public in investment. And of course, you have to think about how the GDP grew, right? So uh, the GDP today is much, much bigger than it was back then. But we were at close to 4% of GDP investment in public financing mm -hmm. in science and technology. This is the post-Sputnik uh, era. Today, we are decades beyond Sputnik, right? And the, the opportunities, the challenges, the threats, our dependencies on space are, are geometrically much, much bigger than what it was during the early Sputnik days, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Explorer 1 was launched in, uh, on January 31st, 1958, a couple of days from now, uh, our first successful satellite, right? We, we are decades beyond that right. exponentially. But our public financing on S&T and R&D innovation is less than 1.5%. So if you increase that to 1.75 by a quarter of a point based on what today's GDP is, that would have a sea change impact. Forget about raising it to 2%. That would be a hallelujah moment for the entire uh, science and technology community across the sectors. So for NASA, this is important, right? Because NASA is going to be the one that will be the lead on science and technology. I think it is a mistake to not focus on the impact of science and technology and to uh, neglect climate research. Mm -hmm. that, that We should not be neglecting that. We should be constantly measuring the depth of the, the sea levels. We should be looking at moisture uh, vibrations on the water table because on the water level, because that'll give us the, um, the potential of hurricanes and tornadoes and other types of weather calamities. And that those impact millions of people. And that is a tangible uh, mission for NOAA and NASA and others to uh, concentrate on as well as DOD. But the 2024 mission uh, is, is vital. Mm -hmm. It needs to happen. And here's, here's, here's the thing that I have a problem with. I don't think 2024 is a realistic timetable. Okay. I think 2028, between 2024 and 2028, it might be. What I don't see, though, is a mapped out plan by the Department of Defense and NASA to show us how they will get there. And, and, and what are the challenges along the way? And once they get there, what, what's the purpose? What are they, how are they gonna leverage everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we went to the moon the first time, it wasn't just a company uh, and a couple of people in a new agency called NASA. It was the yeah. whole of nation approach. Everybody was in there, right? And so this is something that needs to happen. It's an important mission for another reason as well is you know we lag in STEM, uh, science, technology, uh, engineering, mathematics. Mm -hmm. um, Space, the moon, Mars has energized everybody. My kids who are four, six, and 11 are talking about this, right? Yeah. People who remember Neil Armstrong walking on the moon are talking about this. We produce the least, exactly. We produce the least number of uh, uh, science STEM people in the, in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, India and China have us uh, uh, by a lot. And so that's why we have to uh, invite their nation's uh, science and technology experts to our country. And then we complain saying, oh, they took the technology back and so forth. Well, maybe it's time that we invest in our own nation mm -hmm. and we create our own, uh, you know, geniuses here. And, and some of them will be geniuses, some will be technicians, some people will be vocational types. But whatever it is, we need to have that. Uh, as a national pride a aspect, just like I mentioned earlier about the Chinese, how they went to the moon, mm -hmm. but as well as to advance us in other areas, the technologies that we brought back from going to the moon the first time, you know, the different Apollo missions are still impacting what we do on Earth. Yeah. Now, imagine the impacts of the next one. Now, the 
course of going to the moon is important because we're going to the moon as a staging area to get to Mars. Right. And you need that. You know, I'm a, I'm a Navy guy. You need to have exercises to show you how it will be when you go into a different environment. You know, a lot of us didn't know how it would be like going to, into Afghanistan or Iraq. Afghanistan is, you know, 10,000 feet above sea level in Kabul. Right. So a lot of people don't think or know about that. They think it's a desert environment. Well, take them to Colorado, exercise them. So now their lungs get acclimated mm -hmm. and, and they realize that. Same thing with the moon. Once we go to the moon and spend a week on the moon, on right. the lunar surface, imagine the lessons learned we will have, the, the shortages and the, the things, the gaps that we will identify that will come back to earth and it will generate a flurry of ideas and solutions. And then of course that prepares us for the mission to Mars. The uh, uh, the moon mission is also important because now you know the uh, the, the strategy for uh, nuclear propulsion and mm -hmm. systems, as well as the deep space deep space exploration white paper that the White House put out. They talk about use of nuclear technology, the uh, ability to use small modular reactors on the lunar surface or on the lunar gateway, right? Right, which is right. closer. Uh, those are important because uh, solar. Solar and lunar needs to be used, uh, solar and nuclear need to be used together. But with nuclear technology, now you can do uh, really fast um, uh, 3D printing mm -hmm. for habitats, for on-orbit manufacturing, so you can build your space stations there. Uh, and of course, for uh, spacecrafts to get to Mars faster. Right. A, a normal uh, undersea deployment for a submarine is 90 days. Well, with uh, different types of nuclear technology, you might be able to get to, from the cislunar to Mars in 90 days mm -hmm. and then 90 days to get back. And that cuts down your travel time, your oxygen time, your food time, all of that stuff, right? All the impacts of radiation on your body uh, and allows you more time on, the Mars, uh, on, on Mars to explore. Right. And so these are things that I think are very important, but uh, we need to leverage all the, nat uh, the national instruments of power. We need to leverage our allies' capabilities. And, and you know what? We need to talk with those who do not want to play by the rules like China or Russia and say, hey, like, let's not destroy the moon and let's right. not pollute uh, the, the, the cislunar like we've polluted the oceans. Does that leave the door open, though, for a company, a commercial company like SpaceX to lead America's manned space efforts? not only to the moon, but to Mars, is, which is Elon Musk's stated goal. Yeah, uh, I think that's a very good point. I think we need to look at that uh, as an option. And, the, you know, the commercial crew example is a great example of that, that, um, you know, that, that showed us how uh, uh, commercial companies can actually help us, help the government and the nation as a whole. And, you know, it, whether it's Blue Origin uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, SpaceX, there needs to be some kind of uh, understanding among all of these sort of cutting edge companies mm -hmm. and a uh, way of getting them all together. Because, you know, going to the moon is going to be important, but going to Mars is a new endeavor. And yeah. really, it's going to take the whole of nation approach. And it shouldn't just be a, uh, a, a grudge match or an ego match among these companies. But the, there needs to be some kind of a way to get all of these engineers in a room 
and start thinking about how to do this. Because, you know, the one thing we don't do very well in DC is listen to uh, engineers. A uh, right. couple of reasons why engineers talk in a different language and policymakers talk in a different language. But if we can get all of these engineers who have a zeal for exploration, as well as potentially a pride factor in their nation's capabilities to solve the solution together, uh, I think we can do this faster and it could be done within our lifetimes. What are some of the national security implications for where we are now in space and what's happening in the commercial space industry? That's a good point. So a couple of things we need to do, like I mentioned, we need to increase public financing for U.S. Uh, R&D and S&T. Right. Uh, we need to reform our government procurement systems so that um, our companies, uh, our, uh, our industry is integrated into the larger economy. We need to send predictable signals, like I mentioned, to uh, companies. Hey, we need this product, you know. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but the the joke in DC is we we write the requirements in such a fashion that the company then executes it, and then the government can't use it, and it's, it's a waste of taxpayer money. <laughs> we need to leverage um, our national instruments of power, and so our national instruments of power are basically, you know, uh, in, in the we we call it dime. And it's diplomacy. We need to be able to talk with our allies, uh, talk with those who don't want to play by the rules of the game, come to some kind of agreement on what are the norms uh, and values that we want to uh, uh, enforce or, or live by in, in space. We need to look at, um, you know, how and what is the role of the space force. You know, the Navy makes sure that uh, the sea lines of uh, commerce and civil exploration are on are. Uh, not bothered, how will Space Force do that? You know, right. how will Space Force advance dual technology and, and, and so forth? And how will it actually work with NASA? You know, now, now NASA has a capable uh, and a willing partner. How will they do that? Um, economics, you know, we need to leverage uh, all of our, what I, we call in our report, offensive capabilities and defensive capabilities. Offensive is to take US industry out and about and, and, and push them to the different sectors of our nation, as well as uh, the corners of the globe. So just like what we've heard of foreign military sales, where we help allies and partners build up their uh, military capabilities so that they can maintain their national integrity and freedoms, we need to do have something similar for space so that um, the nations of the world come to us and are part of a system where uh, our allies, our partners, and us help them grow, and they don't go join sort of the dark side, right? right. Our finances, right? We need uh, financial engineering uh, and innovation that anticipate capital needs uh, and market infrastructure and financing for the near term, long term. Uh, we must increase uh, information sharing. You know, one of the things we uh, I noticed when I was in, in the White House just recently was the worry about uh, technology transfers. You know, dual use right. technology transfers and and so that that is something. So if we have more information sharing, uh, rapid and better information sharing, and to be honest, some of these companies uh, that have vested interest, they might want to underwrite these uh, uh, federal technological innovations that need to happen. Because right now, some of this stuff is done in very slow processing time, right. and sometimes even on paper and email. Uh, the ability to uh, have better counter-espionage, counter-intelligence uh, is another aspect of this. And then, of course, you've heard of the Five Eyes, which is the Anglo-speaking nations. Mm -hmm. We need to have something bigger than the Five Eyes. That includes India, that includes Taiwan, that includes countries in Africa that, that we deal with so that we are able to track and tell them about 
the theft that's happening to their intellectual property and they can share with us. Um, the, the biggest piece is uh, NASA predicts that by 2025, they need 10,000 um, people in their workforce, primarily STEM and some economics and finance. How, are, how is the nation going to fill that? Because if we don't, we will never get to where we need to be, where we actually get to the start line. Right. You know, we need to get to the start line. That's what we need. And so uh, in short, you know, we, we need economic policies. Uh, we need better interagency coordination. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, the Biden administration. We don't know if the National Space Council will remain right. or will be folded back. You know, uh, the National Space Council uh, was in hiatus for 25 years and mm -hmm. came back. Uh, but if it's not here, then we need a task force, right. a high level task force where all the interagents can talk to each other. Because right now we don't we wouldn't have that. And each agency would be doing their own thing. And they would be, uh, you know, ha having served on the National Security Council, you know, about tribalism. Right. Um, then the other piece that's important is uh, space must be declared a critical infrastructure. You know, commercial space operations support the U.S. economy, national security and global competitiveness. And it's no different than the way we treated energy in the 60s to the 70s, right. uh, where it, we invested heavily in it. And then we declared it a critical infrastructure and or telecommunications or transportation. Um, and I think there needs to be a sense of urgency that that is something that uh, we've been pushing along uh, majorly here. Dr. Sadat, we've only scratched the surface of, of your report, but we are out of time. How can our listeners get a copy of the full report if they're interested in reading it? All 121 pages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when my kids ask me, hey, they, uh, my grandkids ask me, uh, you know, by 2040, 2060, hopefully I'll still be alive back then uh, in the future. Uh, what did you do during COVID? I will be like, hey, I wrote this uh, product on how we can uh, sustain and ensure uh, the, the peaceful and the secureness of space so that you can do whatever what whatever those grandkids whatever it is you're right doing now, now. <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah the, they um they can go to new space new mexico uh uh to get a copy of that and mm -hmm. i think uh soon uh, some of the government websites are going to hang it up as well uh and we have four uh five webinars that are going to follow one next week and then one each week uh that are going to cover a different section of our, our report and we're building a pretty strong roundtable uh, this week. Uh, next week, we will have Kevin O'Connell, who wrote our foreword, mm -hmm. uh, give a keynote. Uh, and we will have Mike French um, uh, speak uh, on our panel, as well as Christian Zor from U.S. Chamber of Commerce and a few others that we invited. So we'll see if we can get that. But let me just close this out with um, thanking you so much for the opportunity. I hope your listeners uh, find this uh if not uh, energizing, at least they are threatened and uh, they will they will do their best to push the boundaries for space commerce. I think space commerce is the only way to go. And, you know, uh, like I said, you know, I am uh, I'm a I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to this country and uh, the opportunities that uh, are presented to my kids who are born on both sides of this great nation, both coasts from California to Maryland are amazing they would never have these opportunities today that they that they have in this country anywhere else in any other nation and i've lived in a couple of different countries uh, and of course the opportunities that i've been blessed to have um, but we must make sure that america is the, the fastest and that we set the pace and the conditions for others to eagerly follow uh, abide and benefit from 
and that uh, we can never relay relay our um, leadership and our leadership must be so profound that other nations who don't follow the rules must be compelled to uh, replicate it so that they can be successful like us. Uh, and only in doing so, I think uh, the United States of America would project the much needed leadership that we need to have uh, in science, technology, uh, and also, you know, to showcase the vibrancy of our space commerce, and most importantly, the democratic values and norms that we want to carry into space uh, into the decades and the centuries in the future. Thanks so much. Very well said. Thank you very much. We've been talking with former U.S. National Security Policy Director Dr. Mir Sadat about his new report, U.S. Space Policies for the New Space Age, Competing on the Final Economic Frontier. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra Podcast. Find us on the web at xterrajsc.com and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening.